0: I'm really glad that you're all here today, worshiping God with us and celebrating Advent with us. And don't forget, our celebration of Advent is going to culminate on the 24th. So hope you can be here on Christmas Eve, 630. We'll be wrapping up our celebration of Advent. If you have your Bible, please open it to Isaiah chapter 51. We'll read a verse there in just a bit, Isaiah chapter 51. In the advent of Christ, we have the advent of at least four things. We have the advent of hope, of love, joy, and peace. So with the arrival of Christ comes the arrival of real hope and real love and real joy and real peace. And if we don't have Christ, we don't really have any of those treasures, because apart from Christ, the world really is without hope and the world is without love and the world is without joy and the world is without peace, without without Christ. So today we're talking about joy. How does the coming of Christ mean the coming of joy? I'm going to work from a couple questions. The first one is, what is joy? And the second one is, how do I get it? I want to get me some joy. We all want to have joy. So we're going to talk practically about what what does that look like? How do I actually secure joy in in my life? I think Isaac Watts understood joy pretty well. He wrote in 1719, Isaac Watts wrote, Uh, One of the most popular Christmas hymns. In fact, it's the most published Christmas hymn in North America called Joy to the World. Now, it's interesting because he wrote that hymn about the second advent of Christ, not the first. But we sing it celebrating the first coming of Christ. But listen to... I'm just going to read the first two verses and listen to how he... Answers the question of what joy is and where it comes from. In verse 1, joy to the world. And then a parenthesis would be, why? Question mark. Why? Why joy in the world? And he answers that, the Lord has come. Let earth receive Him as King. Let every heart prepare for room and heaven and nature sing. Verse 2, joy to the world. And why? The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Let's pray together. And then we'll talk about joy. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us clarity today. Help us to understand what joy is. God, we ask that you would bring your words with power by your Holy Spirit that those of us who know You and know Your Spirit would be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we would have ears that would be in tune with Your Word. We would hear and and understand and know what it means to be filled with joy. And then, God, will You please help us to to get a vision for what we must do if we want to have any joy in our lives. So help us, God. Some of us may be here today and we're feeling joy. and Some of us may not. And some of us have real joy and some of us have a counterfeit joy. There's lots for us to work through. So bring clarity, God, by your word and by your spirit. Reveal Your truth to us. So that we could be filled with joy before You. And as we are filled with joy before You. God that You would be most glorified. That You would be most honored. And that Your people wouldn't just be. Singing words to You. But we would be meaning words to You. And we would be. Caught up. And our affection for You that flows from our joy. So please do this work in us and among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Eight points regarding joy is what I'd like to work through today. Eight points regarding joy. And all eight points will fall under two headings or two questions. That we're going to seek to answer. The first question being, what is joy? So some points answering that question. What is joy? And then the second question, where do I get it? Okay, Where do I find joy? How can I have joy in my life? So the first question, what is joy? Point number one. Joy is inner delight. So we're going to do a progressive definition. So very basically and foundationally, this is what joy is. And then we're going to work through some biblical principles to get an even uh, broader, uh, more specific understanding of what joy is. But joy is basically, and at the very least, it is inner Delight. Okay, even more so in layman's terms, joy is an emotion of the heart that feels good, and that is what joy is. It is an inner delight. It is an emotion of the heart that feels good. It's an emotion you want. It's something you desire. Okay, we're not we're not resistant to joy. We're not repelling from joy we are attracted to joy we like the idea of joy we we want that we want that to be a part of our inner life so very basically joy is inner delight number 2 joyfulness is a universal trait of god's people joyfulness is a universal trait Of God's people. This means God's people anywhere and everywhere are joyful. God's people anywhere and everywhere are joyful. If you find God's people, you find joy. Because joyfulness is a universal trait of God's people. Christians rejoice. It is one of the things, among many things, that Christians do. Christians rejoice, and all rejoices is, is is the verb of joy, the action of joy. Christians are literally joying. We are rejoicing. Isaiah fifty-one three. If you turned there, listen to what Isaiah fifty-one three says. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. That's Old Testament. We'll look at a verse in the New Testament that's telling us that a universal trait of God's people is Joyfulness. Isaiah the prophet says, if you find God's people, you find joy. If you find God's people, one of the things that you're going to find in them is joy and gladness. And you're going to know you found it. It's not going to be a secret. You're going to know you found it because it will manifest itself in, Isaiah said, thanksgiving and the voice of song.'" So you find Christians, you're going to find a joyful people, you're going to find them rejoicing, you're, you're going to know they're joyful because you're going to hear thanksgiving and song. So they're going to be thanking God. They're a thankful people and they're a singing people. They're a singing people and they're not just mouthing the words, they really, they really mean it. So Christians are, are so joyful that they're singing. This isn't you know the, the singing that you're prompted to do when you're driving in the car and some catchy tune comes on that you can't get out of your head. This is a joy. This is a, a singing that is prompted by uh, an inner delight, and that inner delight is so great that there's a desire to sing. Is why we sing when we come together on on Sunday. Okay, we're coming together and we're singing. It's a mark of the church of Christ. And we're singing because we are a joyful people. That's why we should be singing. So Isaiah says joy and gladness will be found in her. That is God's people. And then in the New Testament, Peter said in First Peter 1, 8 and 9. To us as Christians, though you have not seen him, meaning Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And then what is the result of that? You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So where you find God's people, it is a universal trait. You will find joyfulness. And Peter says that the joy is so... Great in a Christian that it is inexpressible that like we do our best to explain this joy, to articulate this joy, to manifest this joy. But ultimately, words come up short, cannot convey just how joyful we are, just how great this inner delight that we have is. It is inexpressible joy. Number three, joy is a requirement of God's people. So not only is joy a, a trait of God's people, something you find among God's people, God is also clear in His Word that He requires His people to be joyful. Joy is a requirement of Of God's people. God requires His people to be joyful. So joy is not optional for a Christian. There's no such thing that means as, well, you've got your, he's a really joyful Christian. That guy, not so much. He's a Christian, but just not a joyful one. So there's no category for that. In in God's family, there are joyful Christians. And so there mustn't be joyful Christians and and unjoyful Christians or or joyful churches and and joyless churches. Wherever you find God's people, you're supposed to find joy. And God takes it so seriously that he makes it a requirement of his people. Psalm thirty seven four says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. That means we're supposed to do it. To delight ourselves in God. If we read some verses in the New Testament, we find like in Romans 12.8, God's people are to do acts of mercy, but not just do acts of mercy. We're to do acts of mercy cheerfully. Or joyfully. Or in Second Corinthians 9.7, God's people are called to give, but they're called to give what? Cheerfully, joyfully, it's a requirement. Hebrews 13.7, speaking specifically to pastors. Pastors are to watch over the souls in their congregation, but they're to watch over the souls in their congregation what? Joyfully. Joyfulness is a requirement of God's people. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not in suggestive form, but in imperative form, command. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. It's a requirement of God's people. And then Paul says in Philippians 4.4, 4, you've heard the little catchy song. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, when Paul writes that, he's commanding us to rejoice and he's clarifying what he means by, again, I say, rejoice. He's not being the way we, I think, sometimes see him as like a joy cheerleader. That's not what he's doing. He's not doing some dance while he's singing that. And saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And here's a little catchy tune for you. Again, I say rejoice. He's saying it again because he means to drive home that this is a command. It is not acceptable for God's people to not be joyful because God requires his people to be joyful. And I got to tell you, when I first understood that God's word was saying that joy was a requirement of his people, it sounded very, very strange to me. Well, How can you require that? How can you require? I mean, it sounds like God is requiring something of me that is out of reach. Amen. Which, by the way, is not uncommon for God to do. To require things that are impossible. But I thought, how, how God, I understand when the verse is where you say you want me to be joyful and you're, 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 you're saying things so that my joy would be full. And so you're the one who makes me joyful. I get all of that. But then when he requires me to be joyful, well, you can't do that. You can't do it. You can't make someone happy. You can't make someone have inner delight. I can't look at someone and say, be happy. Now. Just do it. You can't you can't manufacture that, right? It's we right it's an emotion of the heart. It's inner delight. It has to be prompted by other things. It has to be motivated by other things. It has to be brought about by other things. How can you? It doesn't sound fair, does it? It doesn't sound fair that you would require joy of your people. It reminds me of something that my dad would say once in a while. On the heels of giving me an instruction that he could tell I did not want to follow. And he might give me an instruction like when I was younger, clean your room. And I would obey him, but I would obey begrudgingly. And I'd make sure that he knew that. You've done this or you've seen people do this. You do it with your boss at work. You did it with your parents when you were kids. So I'm going to obey you, but I'm going to show you in everything else that I am am capable... other than my actual action, I'm going to show you with my eyebrows and, and with my face and with my body language and with my tone. I'm going to show you in every way that I can that I do not like your instruction, that I am not happy, that I have no joy because of this, but I'll do it anyway. And my dad would sometimes say this, I want you to do this and I want you to do it with a smile on your face. Right? I feel like what God is saying. And so what would, what would he get? <laughs> well, you know that smile. I'll give you the smile, but right, head forward, you get like the Botox smile that looks like it's just plastered on my face and isn't going anywhere. <laughs> Is that what you want? Now are you happy? Because I'm not happy, but I'm pretending to be happy so that you'll be happy because you say I have to be happy. Around we go, Right? You can't make someone you can't make someone be happy. You can say you like them to be joyful. I hope you're joyful. I want you to be joyful. but how do you require how do you require joy? Now we've got to understand joy then so that we understand the mind of God as far as we can and understand what it is we require of us. But one short answer, To answer the question, is this a fair requirement of God? Is that it is. Because God is worthy of our delight in Him. He's worthy of our delight in Him. He deserves us to have joy. He's worthy of our enjoyment of Him. So here we are now leaning into a definition and trying to understand what joy is. Let's keep answering this. First, let me answer it negatively. Here's what joy is not. Here's what joy is not. Number four, joy is not a superficial act of willpower that comes naturally. Some of you know this. Let's break this down one at a time. Joy is not a superficial act of willpower that comes naturally. So first we're saying joy is not an act of willpower. You cannot decide to rejoice. Go ahead and try that. You cannot decide to rejoice. It is a joy. It is a spontaneous and emotional response of the heart. It is a spontaneous and emotional response of the heart. So you can't contrive it. You can't decide, I'm going to rejoice. You can't say, I've, I've made up my mind. I'm going to be happy from now on. You've said things like that, or you've heard people say things like that. You know, I'm done I'm done being gloomy, I'm done being grumpy, I'm done being cranky, I'm done being depressed, I'm done being discouraged, I've made up my mind, right, from this day forward, I am choosing to be happy. You can't do that. Well, we can say that, and you get, you get like seven minutes out of it. And then you, you wake up. Your eyes will be opened, or something will happen. And you find that joy is fleeting. There's no no power from within that can secure joy. It is not an act of willpower. Joy is also not superficial. This may distinguish the word joy from the word happy in some of your minds. But joy is not superficial. Joy is deep and durable. Joy is deep and durable. Romans 5.3 Listen in these verses to the durability of joy. Romans 5.3 Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So joy is not superficial. Joy is deep and joy is durable. We can learn that from these two verses where we see joy side by side with what are the two words? Suffering and affliction. So it's durable. It's not like, well, you have joy, but then suffering comes and there goes the joy. Or the affliction comes and there goes the joy. No, there's affliction and there's joy. There's suffering and there's joy. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 8, 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Is that a misprint? Do we lose something in the translation? That can't be what it says. This is not worldly wisdom. Did you hear what Paul said? In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is paradoxical. That makes no sense. This is not logical. What is the condition of these people he's talking about? What is the condition? He gives two conditions. Severe test of affliction. They're in a severe test of affliction. And they're in extreme poverty. And and what is that overflowing into? Right? It's overflowing into an abundance of joy and a wealth of generosity. That's the overflow. Severely afflicted. They're severely being afflicted. They're in extreme poverty. And that leads to depression. That leads to being destitute. No. For those he's speaking of, it leads to an abundance of joy And a wealth of generosity. That makes no sense. We're missing something. There's some sort of key to unlock that. Because we all know that severe affliction is not supposed to make me happy. And extreme poverty is not supposed to make me happy. That's why I don't want to go out and get afflicted. I don't want to go out and get poverty. I don't seek after those things because they're not going to be good for me. This is, this is how I think. Or he says in 2 Corinthians 7.4, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. What, what is he talking about? He's, he's mad. He's crazy. He's filled with affliction and he's, that is causing him to be filled with joy. So joy, Christian joy, biblical joy is not superficial. It is deep and durable. And here's what these verses just taught us. They taught us that joy does not just endure in affliction. Joy flourishes in affliction. That's deep. Durable. It's not just saying, okay, you have joy, right? And your joy is so strong that no matter what happens, no matter what happens circumstantially, no matter what kind of furnace you're put in, no matter what kind of affliction, the pain, suffering, trouble that life brings your way, that your joy is so strong that it will endure. You'll there'll be it may get down to a thread, but there will be a thread of joy, it will hang on. That's not what it says. Not that joy endures in affliction, but joy. Flourishes in affliction, so more affliction. Listen to this: more affliction, more joy. More suffering, more joy. More trouble, more joy. This is what we're learning. So it's not what the world says. Whatever kills me makes me stronger. The Christian says, whatever kills me, make, whatever I'm sorry, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. The Christian says, whatever doesn't kill me. Makes me more joyful. Feels weird to say. I mean, the world has said, I I see benefit. You know, whatever doesn't kill me, I learn things, live and learn, and become stronger because of it. But according to the verses that we're reading, whatever doesn't kill me, it makes me more joyful. So joy is not superficial. And then joy does not come naturally. Which is why a mere act of willpower is not going to accomplish it. Because joy does not come naturally. Joy is not wrought. It's not worked or brought about. Joy is not wrought by the human spirit. Joy is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Joy is not wrought by the human spirit, but the Holy Spirit. It is not natural, it is spiritual. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit. Remember what one of them is? Joy. So it's fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Or Romans 14.17 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So joy is not natural. It does not come naturally. Anyone can be happy because things are going well. That's not what we're talking about. But there is joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said in John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So here's Jesus in John 15, right in the middle of this long teaching. He's giving his disciples, his closest friends, and he says, I want you to be joyful. I want you to be joyful. I want you to have, Jesus is telling him, I have maximum joy. I am as joyful as you can possibly be, and I want you to be that joyful. Now, what does he say that? What is the context when Jesus is saying that? So He's saying, I want you to be joyful, and that is in the middle of preaching to them about how he intends to send them his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit will bring them joy. What will the Holy Spirit do? Jesus said, He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will come and dwell a Christian. The Holy Spirit will illuminate Christ. And what will the result be? Joy. Joy will be the result. So joy is not a superficial act of willpower that comes naturally. So I think we can define it now. Number five. What is joy? Joy. Joy is the deep and durable delight that is rooted in the hope that comes from knowing Christ. So that's joy. That's a a working biblical definition of joy. Joy is the deep and durable delight that is rooted in the hope that comes from knowing Christ. That's what you'll find in a Christian. That's what's required of God's people. This is required of God's people that we have a deep and durable delight that is rooted in the hope that comes from knowing Christ. So this makes sense of some of the verses we've already read, like Psalm 37 four. delight yourself in the Lord. What's it rooted in the Lord? Delight yourself in the Lord or Philippians 4.4 4. Rejoice, again I say rejoice, but what does Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord. And Romans 15.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So Paul says, you're going to be filled with joy. Who fills you with joy? The God of hope. And when will you be filled with this joy and peace? He says, in believing. In believing. So the joy is the fruit, but the root of this tree where this joy is going to grow, it is rooted in the hope that comes from knowing christ matthew henry said this in his commentary on that verse i just read from romans 15 the joy and peace of believers arise chiefly from their hopes what is laid out upon them is but little compared with what is laid up for them therefore the more hope they have the more joy and peace they have Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. So the second question we want to answer is, how shall I be joyful? How will I secure this joy, this deep and durable delight? How will I fight for that kind of joy in my life Well, Matthew Henry just laid it out quite simply when he said Christians should desire and labor after an abundance of hope. It's put pretty simply. More hope, more joy. No hope, no joy. How shall I have this hope? How shall I have this joy? Well, number six, let's say it negatively again. How will it not be secured? Joy will not be secured through outward comforts. Joy will not be secured through outward comforts. This is really important for us to think about. This is really important for us as it's timely as 21st century Americans. Every generation has their issues. Every culture has their issues. There's nothing new under the sun, but certain cultures are susceptible to certain sins and, and maybe others aren't. But we have our baggage. We have our baggage, who we are. And where we live and the air we breathe and the lives we live, we have our uh, significant temptations. And so we really need to think about this point because this is very counter-culture. Joy will not be secured through outward comforts. So that's not what we believe. Naturally, we believe that the more outward comforts I have, the more joy I'm going to have, the, the happier I am, the more things outward comforts, the more things in life go the way I want them to go, the happier I am and the happier I'll be and the more joyful I will be. And so life becomes, the American dream becomes, the pursuit of joy and happiness becomes controlling, right, all of your outward comforts and having life go the way you want it to go. And the thought is, is if I can control these outward comforts and if I can get my life to go, at least in some ways, the way I want it to go, then I will have this elusive happiness and joy. And so we make plans and we make up our minds and we figure out what we're passionate about and what we feel like we're built to do and what we're wired to do and we pursue these things in hopes that all of that will line up so that we will be happy. But we've got to remember, joy is not superficial. It's not found on the surface. It's not found in outward Comforts. Rather. Joy. Remember. Not only endures in affliction. Joy thrives. In affliction. Joy will not. Be secured. Through outward. Comforts. For some of you that. That might be really good news. Because you don't have a lot of outward comforts. The reason this is a problem for us is because we, in our day and in our age, probably unlike any civilization that has gone before us, that's just an opinion, but perhaps Unlike any civilization that has gone before us, we are able in an unprecedented way to control our outward comforts. We can control them. We can have what we want when we want it. We have so many resources, we have so many opportunities, we have so much wealth, we have so many people. We have so much that is available to us that that can become what we turn to for our joy because outward comfort is extremely accessible to us. Most of the world we know does not live that way. Most of the world are not tempted to seek joy in outward comfort because there is no outward comfort. So there's no temptation there to find joy. But we can control things and we can control what's going on around us in such a way that when the outward becomes uncomfortable, we just change the channel. Literally and emotionally and spiritually. We can just change the channel. You can run away from discomfort Outwardly, you can run away from painful circumstances. You do this on the, on the television set. Right? Something comes up on the television. It's sad. It's sorrowful. It's gloomy. I don't want to feel that right now. I don't want to watch that right now. So what do I do? I will change the channel. I, I am not interested in watching Sally Struthers cry, some of you know who she is, cry for a half an hour on the television and make me feel terrible and guilty. I'm not going to watch that. I'm just going to change the channel. Oh, a football game. Much better. Much better. Oh, look, they're so happy and <laughs> joyful. This is good. Ah, oh, I feel the joy returning. Is that really what's happening? I don't want to see that. I don't want to see these little boys and these little girls with swollen tummies who don't have food to eat. I I don't want to see that. I don't want to I'd rather not think about that. I'm I'm happy right now. I've got things to do. I don't wanna I don't want to consider that. So what do I do? I just change the channel. Now we can do this in life something comes up, it's painful, it's troubling, there's suffering, it's it's affliction, and there are ways for us to run from it, to to change the channel. Oh, this relationship is really difficult, so I'll just dump this relationship. This marriage isn't going well, I'll just divorce them. What am I doing? I'm just changing the channel. Oh, I'm having problems in this church, it's really getting difficult, I don't like it, I don't think I agree with everything. I'll just go to a different church, it's a hundred down the road. What are you doing? You're just changing the channel. You're just controlling your outward comforts and the underlying belief can be that joy is secured through your outward comforts. And so I just keep changing the channel. If something gets difficult, tough, painful. I just sweep it under the carpet. This is why some drink so much alcohol. It's why some turn to drugs. I'm only going to be joyful through my outward comforts. There are no outward comforts. So I need to numb myself. So I'm not thinking about it. So I can ignore it. So I can sweep it under the carpet. What's the belief? Joy is secured through outward comfort. You don't have to close your eyes. This is good news for a Christian. We talk about joy. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to sweep things under the carpet. We don't have to numb ourselves. We don't have to ignore the pain and anguish that is within, that is without. Listen to Isaiah 35.10. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When will sorrow and sighing flee away? The second advent of Christ. What does that mean? This is an age of sorrow and sighing. So you can be sorrowful. You can sigh. You live in a sorrowful world. Now again, we may be able to change the channel... And we may be able, unlike any other culture has been able to do, to turn it off and to ignore it and run what's going on within, what's going on without, what's going on in our country, our city, our own heart, our world, but it's there and it's nagging because we live in a world that is filled with sorrow, that is filled with sighing, that will be until Christ returns. This is our reality. And joy is not... The absence of sorrow. It can't be. Because God says what? You live in a world full of sighing. You live in a world full of sorrow. You live in a miserable world. And I want you to be joyful every second. Compatible. Joy is not the absence of sorrow. Job twenty two twenty five. 25. Job's good friend comes to him and says, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. What's the assumption? I don't have any gold. I don't have any silver. I don't have any money. You know what this feels like. I don't have any money. Well, what do you mean? No, I have none. I have negative money. There's nothing. The Lord... The Lord shall be your gold and your precious silver. Psalm 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What's he saying? I've got no grain and no wine. There's no food in the closet, but you have poured more joy in my heart. So it is not secured through outward comforts. Clearly, Habakkuk three seventeen through 19. If you haven't read these verses or heard them recently. Listen to what the prophet Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no good. The flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy In the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Christian joy is not detached from suffering. Christian joy lives and breathes in suffering. Remember the disciples in Acts chapter 5? They were preaching the gospel. They got in trouble. The authorities arrested them. They told them, stop. Don't preach the gospel anymore. And then they beat them. And beat them doesn't mean they pushed them on the ground and kicked them a couple times, it surely meant that they were severely beaten. In the very next verse, do you remember what the disciples did? It said they went on their way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Joy is not secured through outward comforts. Clearly it's not. And it's a good thing. Because you and I have zero control over our outward comforts. It says the disciples rejoiced as they went on their way. And you remember the reason they gave for why they were so full of joy? They, th- they just thought it was great that God considered them so worthy to suffer a little bit like Jesus suffered. They were beat up and said, you know what, we understand a little bit more now by experience what Christ went through out of love for us. and our love for Him has now increased. And our joy has increased. And they went on their way rejoicing. Christians are joyful. Now, of course, let me say this to be clear. If it's not clear already, there is a difference between being joyful and being chipper. This doesn't mean that Christians are chipper and gleeful and Jovial and jolly and perpetually smiling and there's nothing wrong and no really, there's nothing wrong. Please stop asking me. There's nothing wrong. Everything's great. How are you doing today brother? I am blessed. How are you? Way better than you. Even more blessed than you. Life just couldn't be better, couldn't be sweeter. It's wonderful, amazing, like heaven on earth. Joy, 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 right? It's not just detached. Do you not know what's going on in your heart and in your family and in your world? So it's not this disillusioned, deluded, everything's fine, it's a sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, right? Carl Truman a while back, wrote a great article, and the title of the article was, What Can Miserable Christians Sing in Your Church? He had a frustration. He traveled and spoke at different churches, and after visiting in innumerable churches, he found that most worship services were oddly detached from miserable realities. And so the question he would pose to people in the churches after sitting through a very chipper service where it just seemed like everything was great and fine and nothing's wrong in me, out of me, wherever. It's just wonderful all the time, everywhere. His question to them was, what can miserable Christians sing in your church? And you know what the response was? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Just thought he was joking. The chipperness, right? Just kept going. He said, no, really? 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 I mean, how, how does the person who's dying of cancer sit through your service? How does the person whose, whose marriage is, is eroding from beneath them. How do they sit through your service where you seem so detached from the many miserable realities that are a part of this world? The truth is, we are miserably joyful. We're joyfully miserable. To be joyful does not mean to be chipper. You can be chipper sometimes. That's all right doesn't mean to be gleeful. It doesn't mean to be jolly and jovial. Because again, it does not mean the absence of sadness. It doesn't mean the absence of sorrow. That is not what joy is. If you read the Psalms, you find all of it, don't you? You find joy and sorrow. Often in the same Psalm. John Calvin said that the Psalms are an anatomy of, of the human soul, you, you just read about the whole emotional anatomy of man when you read the psalms, And you read God's people dealing with God. and sometimes you read a psalm like Psalm 102 that is just so real, it's frightening. And it's not chipper. And it starts off with the man who just wants life to end. He's not eating. He's not drinking anything. He's not sleeping at night. He's totally miserable. And then by the end of the psalm, he's reminding himself of the goodness and the glory of God. And you see his heart start to start to turn, his head comes above water. It's a reality for us as Christians. Joy in Christ is threatened by circumstances but never thwarted. So point seven joy is secured through inward comfort. It's not outward. If it's out if there's outward, if it's going well, great. Praise God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. He's probably not going to give every day. You're going to lose. It's not always going to go well. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But the joy is unaffected. Joy is secured through inward comfort. Remember, what is joy? Joy is the deep and durable delight rooted in the hope that comes from knowing Christ. So joy is secured through knowing Christ. This is where joy is found. Through inward comfort, which is knowing Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, There are two things which I have always looked upon as difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad, the other is to make the godly joyful. That is really funny and really true. Apparently, nothing has changed in 400 years. He said, I find this very difficult. I cannot get a wicked person to get sad, they're just happy. Everything's great. What is he saying? I'm trying to talk to this person and preach them the gospel and tell them they're headed to hell and they're gleeful and jovial and happy and everything's fine. He's like, why can't I make wicked people sad? But what's his equal frustration on the other side? I can't get godly people to be joyful. It's the godly people who are running around and walking around with their heads down, gloomy, 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 gloomy. Cannot make the godly joyful. And then he said this. Dejection in the godly arises from a double spring. Either because their inward comforts are darkened or their outward comforts are disturbed. Friends, you have no control over your outward comforts. They will be disturbed. If they haven't been yet, it's coming. And I would not want your joy to be rooted in them or it is going to vanish in an instant. You have no control over your outward comforts. But friends, do not let your inward comforts become darkened. Do not let your inward comforts become darkened. The inward comfort of knowing Christ. So how shall I be joyful? Number eight. The key to joy is knowing God. That's it. It's the punchline. The key to joy is knowing God. Loving God. Believing God. Trusting God. The key to joy is knowing God. Knowing Christ. Joy is the heat. Knowing Christ is the light. That heat, that warmth, that emotion, that inner delight of joy. You will not have the heat without the light. No light, no heat. No sun, no warmth. Joy is the heat, knowing Christ is the light. You've heard us say this before. Right thinking leads to right living. Say, why is doctrine such a big deal? Why is theology such a big deal? Why do we have to keep understanding more and more of God's Word? Why do we have to nitpick? Because there is no joy, among other reasons, apart from knowing God. And God is known through His Word. And so the reason we take, one reason we take doctrine so seriously is because we love you so much and we want you to be joyful. We want your joy to be full. And your joy will not be full with wrong, weak doctrine of who God is in your heads. That will lead to great discouragement and depression. And you will only be lifted out to a place of joy when those inward comforts are no longer darkened and you have good understanding and knowledge of who Christ is. So let me close with two very practical applications. What is it going to take for you and me to be joyful this Christmas? That's a funny thing to ask, right? Because everybody's happy at Christmas. It's Christmas time. Of course. We're, we don't need any help. We have a very happy time of year. You see it? Happy holidays. Not sad holidays. Or depressing. Suicidal holidays. It's happy. Happy holidays. See... Mickey Mouse dancing and with Minnie and the snow is falling on Main Street and everything's wonderful. What are you talking about? Christmas is not happy for most people. For most people it's not. More people will take their own lives in the next couple weeks than any other time of the year. So discouraged, so depressed. Why? Because they think that joy is found in some sort of outward comfort. And all the pretenders around them are making it look like they've got all the outward comforts. And it feels like they're the only one who doesn't. So what's the point? I'm sure I'd feel the same way. I'm sure I would. Joy comes from knowing Christ So two helps. Number one, what is it going to take for you to be joyful this Christmas? Number one, cry out to God for joy. Sometimes we don't think of doing this. Ask him. Well, he knows I want it. He knows a lot. He knows a lot. And that argument will have you never praying. So cry out to God for joy. Say, I don't have joy. I need to work at it. Well, you do. Well, that's number two. Number one, cry out for joy. Ask God for joy. You know it's an inner delight. You know it's got to happen in your heart. It's got to be a change of heart. And there's only one I know of in the whole universe that can change your heart. It's God. He did it the first time when He regenerated you. He's been doing it ever since. You may need Him to do it again. You want joy? There is no joy. Cry out to God for joy. You remember David doing that in Psalm 51? He's rock bottom, rock bottom. It doesn't feel like life can get any worse for David at that point. He has hit the bottom. Life has fallen apart. The wheels are off the wagon. He can't even see the wheels anymore. It's bad. And do you remember what his plea to God is? Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. What's he doing? He's crying out for joy. He's setting an example for us. Cry out for joy. What's he saying? There was joy. There's not joy. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And the number two, for those of you where that's not tasky enough. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right, I know. (laughs) That's what we do. (laughs) Number two, use the means of grace. Use the means of grace. Do you need God to work in your heart? Yes. Will there be joy without God working in your heart? No. Does that mean you have no responsibility? No. It does not mean that. There are, God has made available to you as His children, the means of grace. The means by which we experience the favor of God. God is gracious to you. He loves you. He loves you. He has favor. He has favor for you. Your adopted son, your adopted daughter. How do I come to experience the favor of God? And we call these the means of grace. And there's not many of them, and they're not complicated. It's not some book you have to go out and find. It's not some program you have to enlist in. It's not some secret trick. They're just the simple means of grace. You could probably name them off: prayer, prayer, praise. The Word. Reading God's Word. Memorizing God's Word. Studying God's Word. Sitting under the preaching of God's Word. Fellowship. Fellowship is a means of grace. A means by which you experience the favor of God is if you are in fellowship with God's people. If you're not in fellowship with God's people, if you're giving up meeting together as God has called us to do, you are cutting off a lifeline to your joy. The Lord's Supper or communion. If you haven't been baptized, baptism. These are means of grace. These are means by which we experience the favor of God. This is how we know God. This is how we know Christ. And the more we know God and the more we know Christ, the more hope we have and the more our joy will be full. William Grinnell and other Puritans said, The reason why many poor souls have so little heat of joy in their hearts is that they have so little light of gospel knowledge in their mind. The further a soul stands from the light of truth, the further he must needs be from the heat of comfort. Rarely when a Christian is depressed when a Christian is without joy. Rarely have they not first neglected the means of grace. When we choose to neglect these means of grace, we choose to sever the roots of our joy. And it's just a matter of time. Psalm 36.8 They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Psalm 63.1 O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, Psalm 42.1 As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. With the advent of Christ comes the advent of joy, which is why Luke 2.10 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people let's pray father thank you for your word thank you for giving us minds minds so that we could understand who you are who we are and what you have done to rescue us from ourselves God, please fill us with the knowledge of You. Fill us with good and right and sound doctrine that we may know what You require of us, that we may know the kind of life that we should live, that there would be great kindling for our joy, that we would actually have firm, reasons to be joyful. So God, deepen our affection for You as You deepen our understanding of Your affection for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.